Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. In the context in which we read from the prophet Isaiah is the height of prosperity for Israel. Wonderful. And yet, this prosperity has resulted in dramatic inequity. Urban elites manipulate and loophole their way into gaining capital and land at the expense of small farmers. And God isn't pleased, and neither is Amos. In chapter 2, Amos describes the elites as people who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. And so, much of the book of Amos is the prophet's indictment of Israel's iniquities and corruption of justice that has become widespread. In today's reading, the prophet calls them to return to the ways of justice and righteousness, two of the most important concepts of the Hebrew faith. Now let's turn to our scripture today in Amos. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire and will devour Bethel with no no one to quench it. Ah, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. They hate the one that reproves in, in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards. You shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous, you take a bribe, and you push aside the needy at the gate. Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. Let's join our voices together and sing our song, Crowded Table. And I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for every 
while we still are able and bring us back together when the day is done you can hold my hand when you need to let go i can be a mountain when you're feeling badly low i can be a street light showing you the way home if you can hold my hand when you need to let go i want a house with a crowded table and a plate by the fire for everyone let us take on the world while we stand When the day is done And bring us back together When the day is done Amen. Several years ago, a professor of psychology and social theory by the name of Barry Schwartz walked into a Gap store to purchase a pair of jeans. Schwartz said, that he tends to wear his jeans for a long time, so it had been quite a while since he had purchased a a new pair. A young salesperson met him at the door and asked him if he needed any help, and he said, I need a pair of jeans, 32, 28. She said, do you want slim fit, easy fit, relaxed fit, baggy or extra baggy, stone washed, acid washed, distressed, button fly, regular fly, faded or regular? He said, I just want a regular pair of jeans, you know, the kind that used to be the only kind. Has this ever happened to you? Um, I mean, every time I walk into a Starbucks, it happens. You can't just order a regular coffee anymore, right? Um, You have to choose between light roast, medium roast, dark roast, hot or iced, pour over or fresh brewed, a tall, grande, venti, cream and sugar, or both, half and half, 2%. Skim, soy, almond, goat milk. And you have to make all these decisions before you've actually had a cup of coffee, right? Swartz said he chose easy fit jeans because relaxed fit or baggy implied that he was getting a little soft around the middle. And so his next stop was the supermarket where he counted 85 varieties of crackers 285 varieties of cookies, 230 different soups, 120 pasta sauces, 175 varieties of salad dressing. And that got Schwartz to thinking about all the daily choices that you and I have to make as Americans in every facet of life. Education, religion, romance, friendship, parenting, entertainment. He wrote a book about it. He titled it, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. And in that book, he says, there are a lot of people walking around really, really dissatisfied with their lives, but unable to put their fingers on what it is that's so troublesome. It turns out, as he argues in the book, that the more choices that we have, the less happy we tend to be. As the number of choices 
increases, we begin to become overloaded until choice no longer liberates, he says, but debilitates. Why is this? Maybe it's because we live in this culture of consumption that has turned each of us into mere creatures of consumption. Our culture has become this vast supermarket and almost it feels like to be a citizen in that world today means that we must be relentless consumers. Think about this. In the days following the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, Americans, we know from history, were immediately inspired, even galvanized, mobilized by this unifying vision for the common good and a commitment, a shared commitment to working for it. Every American was all in, right? Sacrifice, duty, determined responsibility for each other. These, these mutual commitments, they unified a, a wounded nation and actually helped become the catalyst for defeating tyranny in the world. And 60 years later, in the days following the terrorist attacks of 9-11, the national rallying cry was far different. American citizens weren't, weren't called to duty and equal sacrifice. In fact, our leaders called us to go shopping. And while so many brave Americans, men and women, went off to war, most of us just went to Disney World or the market. Schwartz says a lot of people are walking around really dissatisfied with their lives but unable to put their finger on what it is that's so troublesome. I wonder, could it be that the common good to which we are called to work for together has been replaced by a consumer marketplace that we're just simply compelled to serve, and it's left us deeply dissatisfied? This is the indictment that the prophet Amos makes on the kingdom of Israel. At the time, um, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of the north was called Israel. The kingdom of the south was called Judah. And these kingdoms never got along, not really unlike the north-south rivalry of the United States and our history. Well, Amos was this prophet from the southern kingdom, and he was called by God believe it or not, to go to the northern kingdom to deliver this really harsh message. Imagine that. Now, life was going really well in the northern kingdom. The economy was rolling. A lot of people were rolling in money. Brinks trucks were backing right into the temple and unloading boatloads of cash. Um, from the outside, Israel's prosperity, it looked like a, a sure sign that God was blessing the kingdom. I mean, religiously speaking, people were doing all the right things. They were obeying all the commandments, the laws for how to worship God. Um, they, uh, they observed the festivals. They gave their tithes and offerings. They made beautiful music. But on the inside, the kingdom was corrupt to the bone. Judges were at the gates receiving the poor and their complaints, and they were ruling against the poor because they were taking bribes from the wealthy. 
the underprivileged, they were being trampled and neglected. The sick and the old were just getting sicker and older, while the wealthy, the priests and politicians were just getting richer and fatter. There was no, in other words, concern for the common good. There was no commitment to cultivating this shared common life together. It was every man for himself in a culture of endless competition and consumption. And that's when Amos from the southern kingdom of Judah steps onto the scene. Amos is this mad farmer from down south and he's determined to level those northerners with this searing message of judgment and a call to repent. And he shows up one day in his overalls. He's got a Bible in one hand, a pitchfork in the other. And he says, um, howdy y'all. Name's Amos from down south. The Lord sent me to give you a little message. He says, uh, let, me, let me pull this little message out from God here and read it for you. Oh, here it is. He says, uh, and he says, this is God speaking, mind you, not me. He says, uh, God says, I hate your worship. I despise your music, your offerings, all your prayers. They make me want to throw up, he says. You're a bunch of scoundrels and cheats, and if you don't start justice, getting justice flowing again, if you don't start getting righteousness going downstream again, it's going to be lights out for you. And Amos puts his letter back into his pocket, and he says, well, I, I, I guess that's about it. Again, name's Amos from down south. God bless your little heart. This is what prophets do. They speak the hard word to people, to nations, and they say, you're missing the mark. You lost your way. God's chosen people, symbols of what God's love and justice look like in the world, and you're headed toward destruction. There's going to be dangerous consequences for you, he said. They were, they were different from everyone else, but they were acting like the rest of the world. Amos was sent to remind the people that God had chosen them, but they Amos says, the time is coming. Jerusalem fell. The temple was reduced to ruins. All those that were survivors of the war weren't living into their chosenness. They weren't, they weren't experiencing what it meant to be. So did the message work? It never works, by the way. <laughs> Uh, did Amos get forward, carted off to Babylon, where they lived in exile for 70 years? And Amos says to overlook or neglect people, sometimes whom we intentionally exclude because they make us untrue to the people of Israel. Did they repent? Well, we know in history that it wasn't long after. I'm sorry. I didn't want this to happen, but I warned you. Comfortable. They say things or do things that, uh, that threaten our own Settled beliefs. After Amos preached his little message that Israel was attacked by the Assyrians and the great city, you had a chance. We've been talking through this, and so in this series we talked about the skeptic, 
Sometimes they make us a series about the kind of people that we need at our table or on the bus, uh, people whom we often a little uncomfortable because they ask so many darn questions. And people like the child that we've seen distorted ways more clearly and calls us to become better people. And the, the one um, who just shows up and with, with a simple faith. <clears throat> we also need people like Amos. The, the justice seeker who remind, models the God of love. People like the pure in heart that we've seen last night. us that our ways are not God's ways. That God's ways are so much higher. Weak. <clears throat> whose integrity helps us see our own desire than ours. Mostly because our ways are about our own lives and our own needs. Amos was here today, he'd say, it's deadly. It's killing us. Needs, rather than about the common good that God calls us to serve. And it's going to lead to our destruction, he would say. And it's not because some army like the Assyrians, Amos, <clears throat> this hillbilly prophet, he calls us out, is our marching at our gates it's it's our unhappiness our culture of competition and consumption if that's killing us it's our own anxiety and and depression that comes from having everything and still feeling dissatisfied it's our lack of personal meaning our sense of incompleteness that's a result of trying to fill our lives with slim-fit, stone-washed, button-fly, extra-baggy jeans instead of serving something greater than ourselves. The, the people of Israel <clears throat> have always had this prescription for how to find happiness and purpose and meaning in life. Amos reminds them in this passage that we heard it's in their DNA as the chosen people, but they've neglected it. What is it? Amos says it's not burnt offerings. It's not fog machines in worship or cool bands singing in the temple. It's not following all the religious rules and regulations. It's not your wealth or your possessions. Amos says it's two things. Justice and righteousness. In American culture, neither of these words really make much sense because apart from Scripture, you can't understand them theologically. But both of these concepts are absolutely essential to our survival as people and even as a nation. In the Hebrew, these two concepts are known as mishpat and sadaka. Mishpat and sadaka. Mishpat is this Hebrew word for justice. It, it actually occurs more than two hundred times just in Hebrew scripture alone the Old Testament and it means literally to treat people equitably it ref refers to the rule of law that that's accepted by society and it's applied equitably to everyone the same mishpat is the most basic institution of a free society and to practice mishpat is to judge and rule simply on the merits of the case, regardless of other factors like age or race or gender or nationality, social status. And this means that, on the one hand, Mishpat recognizes 
that everyone must be assured, insured, that if they do wrong, the law, the law will be applied to them fairly but justly. But on the other hand, Mishpat ensures that everyone is equally protected under the law, regardless of race or gender or those other factors. That means that the sojourner and the immigrant in Hebrew scriptures, they had rights, equal rights. The orphan and the widow, the homeless poor, the aged, they had the same rights as the wealthy and the strong and the healthy, which means that you couldn't take advantage of the vulnerable as they were doing at the gates of the kingdom of Israel. You couldn't disregard the legal cases that people were bringing to you because you got bribed. And then later to justify it because you could say, well, they're less than human. Mishpat is understood as retributive justice. And it establishes that all members of society must act in such a way as to not infringe on the rights and freedoms of other people. And a law-governed society is a place of mishpat, where everyone is entitled to the same rights and privileges. And so Amos says, let a mishpat, let justice roll down like waters. Because Israel wasn't a place of mishpat. The rivers of justice were dammed up. Mishpat wasn't flowing downstream to those who lived below in the hinterlands. So we ask ourselves today, are we living in a society in which mishpat is thriving? Is, um, is America a place of mishpat? Every Christian must repeatedly ask this question. Am I living and cultivating and creating a world of mishpat? And it raises all kinds of difficult questions. Questions that unsettle us. Questions that, that get us defensive sometimes. And questions that often lead to accusations of, well, you're just getting too political in church. Can I ask the question? Why do blacks represent only 13.4% of America's population, yet they make up more than one-third of our prison's population? Why are blacks six times more likely to be incarcerated than whites? It's not a political question. It's a profoundly theological question. Why do women earn 82 cents on every dollar that a man makes? It's a question of mishpat. Why in the United Methodist Church are LGBTQ plus persons still prohibited from getting married or ordained? These are not radicalized questions. They're just questions about mishpat. And every Christian must repeatedly ask these questions. Are we building a place of mishpat where justice is flowing down for everyone and not just the privileged few? And I often hear from people who tell me, I just want biblical preaching. I'm going somewhere else where the gospel's being preached. And I want to say, which gospel? And which Bible? 
Is Amos a part of that Bible? Which part of the Bible? People say, don't preach racial justice. Stop preaching about political issues, women's rights, justice for LGBTQ plus folks. But when you preach mishpat, like the prophets, you're preaching the Bible. But hold on, it gets better. Because mishpat's only half the equation. Mishpat alone cannot create a just and good society. Amos tells us that something else is required. It's called righteousness. In Hebrew, the word is tzedakah. Mishpat is retributive justice. Tzedakah is distributive justice. And a society that can thoroughly observe mishpat can still miss the mark if it doesn't ensure that everyone in that society is entitled to the same dignified existence. Amos tells us we need sadaka. And sadaka, it acknowledges that we don't all start from the same place in this world. Some are just born into generational poverty, while others generational wealth. Some may suffer from a disability or disease, while others, they just live relatively healthy and full-bodied, able-bodied lives. Some live in palaces and some live on the street. But Sadaka says where you're born and where you live should not determine whether you live or whether you die. And Sadaka isn't a weapon to make those of us privileged few feel guilty. It's not to shame us for our hard-working, successful lives. It's just to acknowledge that the underprivileged and the unfortunate, those that for whatever reason have not achieved success, those that are left behind, they don't have to be condemned to a lifetime of indignity. And Sadaka guards the dignity and restores the pride of the broken by distributing resources to them as they need so that they can live fully human lives. And that's Sadaka in the Hebrew Scripture. There's this elaborate plan for it. For example, Scripture mandates the observance of the Jubilee year, which was every seven years, debts were, were forgiven. They were canceled. Why? Because in God's great plan, people shouldn't be crippled by their debt forever. In the seventh year, indentured servants were set free. Why? Because no one should ever be enslaved to a life of indignity and work. In the seventh year, ancestral lands were returned to their original owners so that people would not be condemned to a life of landlessness, which meant a life of powerlessness. Every seven years, even the fields were given a year off so that the field itself wasn't condemned to productivity and abuse. Scripture mandates, if you're a landowner, when you go to harvest your field, leave, quote, the corner of the field for the poor and the hungry to glean from so that the poor and the landless wouldn't go hungry. Every three years, according to Hebrew scripture and law, 
a special tithe was collected and given to the poor to help them become self-sufficient. Even the commandment against usury or collecting uh, interest on loans was a way of ensuring tzedakah, where those who are most vulnerable are not burdened by indebtedness forever. And in these ways, Hebrew Scripture establishes the first form of what you're probably thinking in your mind, what in the 20th century we call the welfare state. But there's one major difference. It didn't depend on the state at all. It was just an accepted part of society. It was implemented not by legislation, not by powerful leaders, but by a shared sense of moral responsibility, a commitment to the common good. Mishpat was the backbone of society legally, but Sadaka was the lifeblood of society, the heart and soul of a people, which is why every Christian must ask, is our is our society a place of tzedakah? In the most affluent country in the world, why are 13.5 million Americans food insecure? Why are 28 million Americans unable to get adequate health care? How is it possible today that one in four American children grow up without learning how to read in the most advanced country in the world? Why is it that half a million people in our country are homeless? Amos says, let justice roll down like waters. Let sadaka or righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. People say, I want a Bible-believing church. And I say, which Bible? Do you know what happens when you preach the Bible? When you preach mishpat and sadaka? You become, you become special. You become unique, like the kingdom that Amos called them to be. You become that light on a hill. You become the example to the rest of the world what it looks like to follow Jesus with courage. Sadaka and Mishpat, Amos says it begins with us. Christian faith requires us to see a need, to name it, and to do something about it. Nicholas Berdyaev, this Central European theologian, he said, if I'm hungry, that's a physical problem. If my neighbor is hungry, that's a spiritual problem. Mishpat and Sadaka, justice, and righteousness. According to Amos, there is nothing more important, not even our swanky worship, not even our fragrant offerings, nothing more important than these two things. Our takeaways for today in our culture of consumption, we are starving for meaning and purpose that can only be found when together we work for the common good. Our salvation is strangely tied to the lives of those who live downstream. And your life is like an abundant field. Leave a corner of it unharvested from which others can glean.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.